Well, good to see you here. Okay, so what did we learn last time? For Philip's sake and mine, review time. Anyone? Inerrancy, yeah, okay. Robert, help me out. Inerrancy, what else? Yeah, infallibility. Okay, what else? Okay, inspiration, good. So we, we dealt with the doctrine of Scripture. Authority, yeah, sufficiency. Vitality. Vitality, yeah, that was a good one. The living nature of the Scripture. That's right, you weren't even here. He was mad at me last time because we did his favorite doctrine and he wasn't here. Um, so, yeah, that's right. And we're going to touch on a couple things there. Your homework for today was supposed to be this area. Okay. How many actually read chapter 9? Oh, that's a good, that's about half. Okay, good. Okay, good, yeah. So, most of you actually, and some of you, most of you have a book here. So, that's good. Um, you'll need it tonight, most likely. At least in part of it, I hope you'll use it. Um, so, tonight, I, I don't know if we'll get through this, but we're right here. And then the fourth section is 14 and 15. So, that done. We covered misconceptions last time. Remember how you got in groups and discussed misconceptions about the Bible? One of them was like the dictation theory. Okay? And we talked about that and how that might affect lives, practicality, evangelism, things like that. Okay? Then, I want to make these points before we move on at the end. So, kind of to sum up when we talk about scripture, sufficiency, things like that, I want to make a couple of final points before we move on. Now, there is a difference between inerrancy and infallibility. In the book, though, do you remember what the book said? It was kind of interesting. <laughs> Which one is actually higher according to it? According to R.C. Sproul. Yeah, infallibility. That's right, Gail. He, he says, and rightly so, according to etymology or the word, infallibility is actually a higher qualification than inerrancy. However, when we talk about inerrancy in modern day terms... It's a better word to use, and I'll tell you why in a second. Because some people have taken the word infallible and twisted it and made something new out of the meaning. When we talk about inerrancy, we're talking about sufficient precision versus maximal precision. This is John Frame. How many of you heard of him? He's read some stuff. He's a, he's a decent author, yeah. So he really, I, I like this. Uh, many other people have put it different ways. But when we talk about this, it just means that the Bible has enough precision to say what it wants to say. So again, we're on the sufficiency thing, right? It doesn't talk about everything under the sun. Even if you were to talk about my life from birth till now, you couldn't. It'd be impossible to write about that, right? And so the authors of the Scripture, led by the Spirit, had to talk about certain things. And think about how many people, how many main characters even there are in the Bible apart from God and his son. Starting in Genesis, we have tons in Genesis itself. And so the authors had to pick and choose what they wanted. And so when we talk about precision, it's sufficient precision, not only in that, like picking and choosing, but also in what it talks about. We talked about phenomenological language. In other words, the sun rises and sets. It doesn't actually do that. That's just the way we talk about it. So many areas are taken and done like that in the Bible. Sufficient precision. Inerrancy addresses truth, though. Not necessarily precision. While it is sufficiently precise for our needs, says that in Scripture, it addresses truth. So that's just another way to look at this, right? It does, God doesn't want to tell us everything that's ever happened in the world. He wants to tell us the truth about certain things. And he always does that. Finally, why I wanted to touch on this is because you'll hear 
infallible. And most of the time, when you hear it in Christian circles, it means something different than what we believe is inerrancy. It means for them that the Bible may contain errors outside of faith and practice, really. That's a simple way to say that. But it may contain errors about things the Bible doesn't speak on. Y'all have heard that before, I think. Right? I know Bob's shaking his head, yeah. Yeah, you've heard that before. That Yeah, in what the Bible says about faith and practice, it's accurate. But about other things, it doesn't have to be, nor is it accurate. Let me give you a list of people that sadly, I think, would probably fall into this camp. Ehrman, now he's an older scholar, but he began the critical, the German critical, so like a while ago, we don't need to get into details, he began putting himself, remember how we talked about being below scripture as opposed to above? He began putting himself above and then being judge on the scripture. There's another guy, Schleiermacher, he's known for existentialism and the new um, theology that came out of that German school. Karl Barth is another guy, well, he was a famous theologian. He talked about the fact that Scripture is not a witness. It, it is a witness to truth. It is not truth itself. But then, as we move into the more modern age, I, I list those. Maybe you can write them down and look them up. But surely you've heard of C.S. Lewis. Okay, well, he was not an inerrantist. He believed, though I like to quote him, I don't like his theology <laughs> in many areas, okay? I read, I think John Piper said, he's a great quote machine, but a terrible theologian, and you never want to preach what he said, okay, from theology's perspective. He wrote great books. He had a great imagination. God blessed him with that. But he was not an inerrantist. He believed the Bible had errors. And when it spoke on science, it wasn't accurate or true. Another guy, Alistair McGrath, is a theistic evolutionist. And so is Walkie. So was Walkie. That's actually one of the reasons he left ETS. Um, so he now teaches in Florida, I think. That's the last... Oh, yeah, okay. I don't know where he is now, but... No, okay, so I, let me qualify this. Yeah, thank you, Jim. I hear that discussion. <laughs> no, that's good. So, so why do I include McGrath and Walkie on there? Good question. Thank you for asking, Jim. Because these guys would not necessarily say that there's an error in Scripture, but they would say that it's a misunderstanding of not, not Scripture, but us, of Scripture. So, example, Genesis 1 through 3 are myth, not reality. But I include them here because I think that this is one of the more dangerous slippery slopes. This leads to things like theistic evolution, which is what they hold to, says that we need to take truth outside of the Bible because we know that that is equally authoritative and mix it with what the Bible says. Even though there have been multiple good um, exegetical studies done on words in Genesis 1 through 3, Job is another case. I don't know what Walkie or McGrath say on Job, but I have heard many people talk about Job as though it's a myth. He never really lived. It's meant to con uh, contribute to the faith or or to give us something that might have happened. And so I think these men are on the path to this, even though they aren't there yet. It's where this guy started. If we were to go back here, there's a cycle. You start somewhere. And so when you start by saying, well, we can't be sure that Genesis 1 through 3 really meant a literal day, because we have science over here that says something different. Okay, I just wanted to sum that up for you to give you examples in modern day. I've, I've listened. This, this man has written great things. I'm not discounting that. And this guy here, he's a great apologist. And I listened to some of the things he's done before. 
But I, I'm not saying that that's that this makes them horrible people. What I'm saying is they don't really believe in inerrancy the way you and I, I think, at CBC would. Okay, so we're going to move on, unless you all have questions about that. We're going to go into theology proper. What is that? What is theology proper? I know you all are great students of the word here. The study about the person of God. Yeah, the person of God. And which, which person of the Godhead typically? Jesus Christ. No, the Father. God the Father. Theology proper. God the Father. And so there are three persons of the Trinity, typically understood. It's held by our scripture, by our God, revealed to us. Now, how about this? So when we're talking about theology proper, here's a question. I'm going to open this up. What does our culture say God is like? So this is not, where do we get it? We, we dealt with sources, right? Remember, we dealt with sources. We, our culture gets much of its theology from experience. But what does our, our, our culture as a whole say God is like? Huh? Them. Oh, that's very deep. Okay, can you explain that? <laughs> what do you mean by them? Who is the them? Okay, a God in our own image. Our own image. Yeah, I think by them, I just wanted to draw it out a little more. You meant man. Man, yeah. And women. Yes, women too. Sorry, yes. Man in a general sense. Bernie, thank you. We got Oprah Oprah up here. The one in the top left. Yeah, the one on the top left. She belongs to the camp that says, I am God. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So we we have the I am God camp. What else do we have? You can pick here. I gave you some fresh bait here or other places you might hear about. Mythical being, yeah, a myth or some kind of, yeah, out there thing that's just from stories. What else? A genie. Yeah. What do you mean by genie? What, what's, what's key about genies? Yeah, magical. What about this guy? Would he be, be kind of like a genie? You put in your... Request and out comes the money, or out comes the whatever you wished for, yeah? In comes the money. And in, out. <laughs> yeah, for him, for him. I was watching something on here, and this particular guy was valued at $40 million in net worth. You tell me where that money is going. Yeah, God just wants you to be happy. This is Joel Steen, by the way. We make him happy. Yeah, we make God. Well, that's an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah, we make this guy happy, certainly. <laughs> Okay, so what else? How about, how about these here? Why have I included these in there? Yeah, so we've got this. Do you know where this was taken? This is in Dallas, right here. This is one of the Hindu gurus who is at a temple, a Hindu temple called Sri Ram something. It's always Sir something in Dallas. What, do, what is that? Why did I include that there in our culture now? Yeah, same God for everyone. Exactly, exactly. And it shows that we accept things like this, that that's true for us as well. Yeah, what about this picture? Do you know where that is? Around the corner, that's right. And you know who that is? That's one of their teachers, one of the clerics there. This, this is what happens. And we have an ISIS thing. Why did I include that there? Yeah, what do they think of God? And that's a, I don't want you to miss that we accept that in our culture. Kind of along with what Jim is saying, but that's right next door. And you better believe that they study the same book as these guys, ISIS, right? So I just wanted to point out, at least with these, now we have Hollywood's picture of God. What, it, what does Hollywood believe God is like, or at least portray him as? 
Morgan Freeman, amen. He's in that one. What else is he in? He's in um, one other one at least that he plays God in. Um, anyway, yeah, so so a man, but what would we say Morgan Freeman's character is like in Bruce Almighty or one of those movies? Philip, you know that movie, right? What is God like in that movie? Yeah, he's funny. I like that, yeah. Funny, kind of joking around with the guy. He hands off his job to a mortal for a while. Jim Carrey, and Jim Carrey can't handle God's job, so it's just too hard for him. So Jim Carrey learns his lesson, right, that he can't be like God, even though it's made to... So God is like a funny person, like a joker. He's on your side. God is much much like what Bernie was saying, a little bit divine. There's something special, like a superhuman strength or quality to him. Yeah. Yeah, but some kind of benevolent, loving God. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay, so I want to throw all those out <laughs> uh, with the bathwater. That is not something we keep. That is a baby we throw out with the bathwater. We want to get rid of all that and talk about knowing God or knowledge of God, as he puts it in chapter 9. Why might I have any guesses why I might have included this picture or what this picture is of? Yeah, the burning bush and his sandals off, right, and Moses... Why might I have included that? Yeah, that's right. It's a great passage to tell us what God is like. God pretty much dictates. Now, this is not what we're talking about scripture, but he tells Moses. Not, it's not a story. It's a straight face-to-face. And that's where we learn his covenant name or what he's to be called. I love that, Robert. The shoes off. There's many things in this picture that really tell us what God is like. And it's a great passage. Okay, we're not going to dwell on that, but that's why I chose that picture, and we're going to talk about the names of God, um, that name of God. Now, he says on page 47 that we will always have limited knowledge of God. That's right. Have you ever thought about that? Like, you will never know everything there is to know about God. Else, to be God. Exactly, Robert, or else you'd be God, and that's kind of a cool thought. Uh, devotionally, as I was doing this, I thought, you know, in all of eternity, I will never... <laughs> I will never know what God is like. And what did you say, Bernie? We couldn't handle it anyway. Yeah, we couldn't handle it. That's right, because I'd know everything about you and everything about the future. Yeah, we couldn't handle it. Yeah, a little bit like Jim Carrey. But you know what? That's true. And that's a great point he makes. And it's something we often don't think about when we begin with knowledge of God. It's a very humble approach, and I commend him for that. I think that is an excellent, again, a good way to start. Then he says on page 40 that... 48, that God in his graciousness and mercy condescends to lisp for our benefit. He's quoting Calvin here in the Institutes. What does he mean by lisp? What is he trying to communicate through Calvin's... Exactly, Joy. Thank you. God talks to us on our level. That's actually a really good quote and a really good concept for us to think about. However, I think it plays out wrongly later. But taken at its face value here, it's a good statement. Finally, he says, we use language of analogy to describe God. And that's true for the most part. Like, I just want to ask, is that clear what it means when we use language of analogy in the reading? Okay, so we can't talk about God actually as he is because we don't have anything that's similar. (laughs) You know, he is a one of kind, unique, and he makes that point. I, however, later will critique that. Because I think there's something lacking there um, when we speak about analogy. When we say God is good, 
This is two of his concluding points. When we say God is good, we mean that his goodness is like or similar to our goodness. Not identical, but enough like ours that we can talk meaningfully with one another, with one another, with each other about it. Page 51. And then he says the fundamental principle is that even though we do not know God exhaustively and comprehensively, we do have meaningful ways of speaking about him. God has addressed us in our terms, and because he has made us in his image, there's an analogy that opens for us an avenue of communication. Now, I put those up there not only because they're his concluding statements, but I think we need to dissect these. So, if you have some pens or something, I don't, I, I don't know if I can pull this back later, but um, they're on page 51. His conclusions are on page 51. Okay? And I want you to remember the word meaningfully... And in his image. Those are two, those are key things I think that we need to talk about here. Meaningfully as a word, and what that means in English in common day, and then in his image. And they're on page 51. Now, I'm going to open this up. We're not going to break down in groups yet. But I want you to talk to me about what you see here. If you were to critique this area, just from what you know of Scripture, without me helping you now, what would you say about these statements of meaningful and in his image and that we can only speak an analogy there? Well, let me help you out. What is conspicuously missing in this chapter about knowledge of God? Okay. The Holy Spirit. We've, we've had a critique about that earlier. You're on the right track. You're, you've, we've now covered two of the three persons of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is missing. Something else is missing. The what? The Son is in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. We have a right answer. <laughs> That's right. Why is that important to this concept? If Jesus is missing here, what do we know Scripture says that's important to this concept? Exactly. John, what? 14, 7 and 8, I believe. Exactly. It's our approach to God. And he shows us what God is like. Okay, so I just want you to note that before we move on. I think that is a major flaw here. And I went through, and I looked in his Christology, and it wasn't there. And I looked back when we talked about Scripture and authority and sufficiency. The word sufficiency isn't there, but this wasn't there either. So I'm wondering, for what reason might we leave that out? And I, I haven't come up with one. So we're going to talk about this more. I've got some case studies for you. I'm going to break it down more, but I'm really happy you caught that in, in class. Obviously, you didn't maybe catch that on your own, but drawing it out, I'm really happy you caught that because that's really important for us. Can you guess maybe then about image? What is, can you connect for me? I'll, I'll help you if you need it here before I move on. But going back to Genesis 127, we think about who God is. And 127 says he created man in his own image. And if we are in Christ, what are we missing here as far as analogy that maybe the person of Christ then can help us with? Okay, so, yes, that's right. What, what do we want to draw out of that then? An analogy is something that is like, something that is not quite the same, right? Something that is just a picture of, but not fully. Like, right, we talk about things that we are, oh, this was like that. You know, you know, football, American football is kind of like soccer, but not really. It's 
maybe a bad analogy, but we use that all the time. We say, you know, badminton is like tennis, but not really. Okay? Those are comparisons. We use analogies. But we use analogies all the time in our daily life. Okay, that one, I can't even think of one. But what is missing here? He's thin like a toothpick. Yeah, okay, he's thin like a toothpick. That's great. Okay, so if an analogy is not the same, Jim, yes, help me out here. Yeah, the image of man is not perfect in us. Is there, is there a better, let me ask it another way. Is there a non-analogical way that God has revealed himself? Is there a non-analog, so is there a way that you can think of in scripture that God has revealed himself that isn't an analogy? Exactly. It can, do we say, exactly, Stan, it says that Christ is the exact, rep- again, flowing off what you guys have said, but is that an analogy? No. I don't think so at all. Any comments? Bob, I see something. Yeah, I, I, I don't like the word analogy. I like the word type. Okay. Here's Moses. Hmm. Yeah, so we, we see pictures of Christ or types of Christ in people that are not analogies either. I think that's something that's missing here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you here what I think the problem is when it comes to this in general and then specifically in the person of Christ. I think... When we come to knowing God and we do systematic versus biblical theology, I think we have a problem here that will help us understand why or what is going on. First of all, we're exposed to the Bible, and I love my little pretty circles here. They're all little different color, okay? Because they're all like different genres or authors or times, right? We're exposed to Scripture. We read our Bible, okay? And we have thoughts about God, true thoughts, because God has given us Scripture. You following? Okay, Then we have a barrier of culture. Our culture, the Bible's culture, it's hard sometimes to understand. We have things, if you think you can get out of your, outside of your American culture, okay, you've got a problem. Because we can't. Like, some of it is just in ground. Now the Spirit helps. Okay? And we're going to talk about that in a second. But at the base level, there's a cultural barrier. But we have, by the Spirit's help, Biblical theology. In other words, we go to the Bible, and like Bob did now, and like many here do, we think about things that come from stories or passages in Scripture, just as they are, with the Spirit's help, maybe with a little bit of cultural twist. Okay, And that's true. We can't escape that. But what happens when we talk about systematically or systematic theology is we also are left with a choice to categorize. So then we come over here and we have this. We have salvation, Christ, man, church. We put in different categories. And what the tendency to do is, is to stop doing this and move everything, as soon as we read something, to put it in a category. To just throw it in something. Oh, that's about Jesus. I got it. Instead of looking at a broader theme of Scripture. So we have systematic theology. Now, if you forget all of this, Remember kind of what Bob said. Look, Scripture has a theme to it. It reveals who God is, not not just by words of analogy, but by giving us types of Christ and ultimately, to use your word, types of Christ, or people that in their lives do something like Christ will, not perfectly, that reveals God, or we have the perfect revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And so I think that's missing here. And I think this may be the foundational problem because academic study leads us to do something more like this. So basically, what I'm saying then is 
He is close with this quote, but not quite there. He says, this does not mean that abstract, technical, theological language is superior to anthropomorphic language. Okay, what is he saying? He's saying, look, my systematic theology is not superior to biblical language. I wish he just would have said that here, okay? So in other words, the stories in the Bible, despite being anthropomorphic, in other words, despite making God have human characteristics, really are equal to my systematic theology. That's what he's saying. In other words, my systems are not superior to what God has revealed in Scripture just as I read it. That's interesting to me. But I think we have extra steps of sinful and limited people when we do systematic... So this is not to say that it's unvaluable or whatever, invaluable. It's good. It's good for us because it helps us categorize if you go back to the beginning. But I think this is a problem. I also think that tensions are easily erased. Look, the Bible presents things that sometimes are a paradox. They aren't contradictory, but we're like, how can that be? How can man make a choice and God be sovereign? When we try to do categories, we resolve tensions that ought not to be resolved, I think, sometimes. Like, how is it that a righteous man can suffer? And in the place of Job, without knowing the spiritual backdrop, and if we were to be a systematic theologian, we'd turn into his friends that tried to tell him, you're a sinner, right? Tensions are too easily resolved. I think it's also Western knowledge-oriented. We talked about this a little bit at at, um, breakfast today, but when we go to systematic theology instead of the biblical story, we take facts rather than context what the Bible intended. I know different cultures are this way. I know that Indian culture is much more relational and story-oriented. And so for them, it's less about Romans, which is a good book, but more about stories like Joseph or the Gospels. And so those things hold power. So just remember that this can be Western knowledge-oriented. Finally, or no, I have one more after this, but we cannot have an infinite set of categories, right? Like some things just don't fit a category. You know, and we, we have to think really hard. And maybe that's good for us, but we can't have infinite categories. And finally, like I just said, stories lose power when moved out of life situations. That's another word for context. So in other words, when we try to put a category on something that God does in a story, we miss the point of the story. And therefore, we miss the force of Scripture or, put it in what he just said, we miss the type for the analogy or we miss the point of the whole story. Right? And so to tie this back in now, what I say here is the problem is that he misses the fact that Christ reveals God perfectly. It's not an analogy. And God has given us types of Christ to show us what he's like. However imperfectly. And those aren't analogies. Those aren't analogies at all. They're reality. Was Christ an analogy of God? In no way. Not at all. And that's a heresy. And so for him to blanketly say the Bible only speaks of God in analogies, I think, I think that misses something. And I think here we come again to the sufficiency of Scripture in Christ. These are not just meaningful things. Remember I said meaningful in 51. They're not just meaningful ways of reading Scripture. Okay? We don't just have meaningful words. We have sufficient words. Follow what I'm saying? Okay? What about Jesus? So it's not just analogical, but what about Jesus as a man? 
I think we have this issue in Genesis 127 as we talked about. The image of man. What does fallen man tell us? Nothing about God. But what does the perfect man, as Jim was saying, tell us about God? Because he is God man. Everything we need to know. Everything we need to know. Hebrews 1 says that God spoke to us in son, a man. Jesus exegetes God. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of God. And this is a great one. In 2.9 it says fullness. It's not just... Look, it's fullness. Uh, I think part of that is revelation. The fullness. Everything we need to know about God, Jesus gives us in perfection. Translate exegetes. Exegetes, draws out, explains. Jesus explains the Father, John 1.18. And then finally, the verse you quoted. Even his disciples were like, man, we want to know what God is like. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? I am. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And so I think this is, a, this is a problem with that chapter. And finally, John 13, 15 says that the life of Jesus is a gift to us. Now, not just in the death, the substitutionary atonement, that is true. But John 13 and that whole following passage, I preached on that at a men's retreat, it is clear. Jesus says, I gave you my life as an example and it's a gift to you because it shows you what God is like. It shows you. I think that's a clear um, mistake here. So, yes, yeah. When two things are analogy, there's always something different. Exactly. Yeah, and with Christ, there's nothing different, nothing at all. Yeah, that's a good point. So, I think here we come to two questions: Are there other meaningful ways to speak about God other than Scripture? Yes, because our preacher does it and you and I do it with each other, there are meaningful ways to talk about God other than Scripture, other than Jesus. However, the better question is, are there other sufficient ways? Or are there other full ways of talking about God other than Scripture and other than Jesus? And I think the clear answer to that is no. No. And so isn't it, again, it's really interesting how I talked about last time that sufficiency will play itself out in interesting ways. Well, I found one. (laughs) I I think it's clear that when we have revelation, we need to think about the sufficiency of Christ and Scripture in revelation. And when we use a word meaningful, however, I I don't necessarily think he was trying to deceive us at all. I think it's just an, a bad way of talking about it. Why don't we say it's a sufficient way? Now let's talk about... Yes. Scripture says it better than ever, we ever could. And it, and it also picks out what we need to know. You know? You ever thought about like trying to tell someone exactly... Oh, shoot, I don't even know exactly what my wife needs. You know? It's like, man. But Scripture does that for us. So, okay. We're going to talk about the nature and attributes of God. And I'm actually going to start you with your case study because we haven't done any interaction in groups right now. What I want you to think about is, now Bob's doing a series on this too, but you have a case study on your table. I want you to respond to that in light of what we've done in the class so far and maybe thinking about the attributes of God, what you know of them because you all do. So come up with a response. I'm going to give you five minutes as a group to come up with a response. Now each of these case studies, hold on, focus here for just one second, uh, these are real life-like situations. I've done this, changed some names and other things, but I have experienced each one of these. 
So have at it. Okay. So I hope that was helpful at least somewhat to give you a real-life situation that I changed to save some names to think through some of the things we've done. Because this really happens, and I'm sure it's happened in your life too. You probably have questions about this, if you're like me, many times at different points in life. So, okay, let's start here with my lovely wife's group. It's a great story. Great way to close. The proof of the cake is in the eating. Amen. (laughs) And there again, in that statement, Robert, we see, I think, what we're talking about with experience is a validation. Oftentimes it can be a challenge, but it's a validation of what God is doing. Um, I think this is a perfect lead-in. You know, briefly as we close, like, one of the one of the aspects, not not just in evangelism, but in our sanctification, is, you know, that we we fail to see who God really is, and we don't believe what we have in front of us. And so, let me turn. You know, I, I want to ask some questions when we get into the attributes of God, because Bob and I have been talking, and I've talked with others, and I've been thinking and praying. I think a good way to do things like the attributes are to ask questions that get us thinking about serious things in our life. And then go to Scripture and who God is like to answer those. So I'm just going to throw some things out for us to think about before we're done here. Why do I have a hard time forgiving myself? Have you ever had that issue in your life? I know I have. You know, I do something so stupid. Like I say something in class or I interrupt. Like even something small like that. I'm just like, I wish I hadn't said that, you know. I have a hard time forgiving myself. I don't know whether it's theological error or whatever. You know, I think this, this really smacks in my life, maybe yours too, of a failure to, to realize that God knows everything. And even before, you know, I said that, he knew it and he's already saved me from that. I think that speaks about God's omniscience. I think a question that we can ask is, why can I, oh, how can I even fight this overwhelmingly wicked world? I said that right. How can I even fight? You ever get depressed when you look at the world? That was Solomon's problem in Ecclesiastes. Right? I think this, smacks of our lack of belief of the omnipotence and omnipresence of God who has, is, and will fight with us. And it's not our battle anyway, even though he asks us to be soldiers with a message like we heard on Sunday. Another question is, why don't my friends listen to me about Jesus? That's a question I have often asked. And I know many of the young adults ask me that. You know, Man, my friends don't even care. You know, we might call this sovereignty, but God, God's in control. He's powerful. He'll do what he wants, just like we talked about here in evangelism. Who will be with me when I move, leave, etc.? You know, I know that we've struggled with that. We move from Iowa to here. And I think when doubt creeps in in situations like that, we, we miss the idea of the Trinity, that God sent his son and there was no lack of fellowship. And God is everywhere. And the Spirit is inside you wherever you go. <laughs> Amen. And we have the Spirit. He's always with us. Finally, why am I still unhappy with my life? Why am I still unhappy with my life? And again, I think that speaks of Trinity omniscience. God knows what it takes and that cut it off, but to be truly happy or satisfied. Right? Why am I still unhappy with my life? But that's a struggle. I think we fail to believe that God knows what it takes to be happy in life and satisfied. So these are some things we're going to tackle next time when we come to, you know, and these are the core of what practically is the outworking of some of the attributes of God.
both these are just these are just the incommunicable in other words the ones that he has himself not even love and mercy and grace and all of those things that we can imitate and are told to imitate so i'm going to end there tonight